there. Welcome in. It's Downtown the Podcast, episode 62. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, I'm Rich Kimball with Carrie Haskell. Our daily show, Downtown, originates from here every weekday afternoon from 4 to 6 Eastern Time on Zone Radio in Bangor, WZON, WKIT, HD3, streaming audio on our website at downtownwithrichkimball.com. On the podcast this week, we've got a couple of terrific guests for you. One, a first-time filmmaker who chronicles the music scene in Los Angeles in the 1960s, and the other, an author who's written another terrific book on baseball, this time setting his focus on the 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers. Andrew Slater, Jason Turbo, our guests this week. We are brought to you, as always, by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. 60s were a time of great change everywhere and in the music industry in particular, as talented artists flocked to one specific area of Los Angeles, Laurel Canyon. That's the subject of a new documentary put together by a former music producer and the president of Capitol Records, Andrew Slater. The film is executive produced and hosted by Jacob Dylan, and we talked with Andrew Slater about putting together this new documentary, Echo in the Canyon. You had worked in the music business for a long time. You produced the Wallflowers' first album. You were president of Capitol Records, and so you were familiar with the music scene. But I understand that what really provided the impetus for making this movie was a catching a showing on TCM of uh, the Jacques Demy film Model Shop. It was, you know. I think there's a point in everyone's life where sometimes you have to look to where you've come from it's figure out where you're going to go next. And, you know, that came for both Jacob and I uh, at one point when we saw this film. And the film, it just reminded us of an innocent period in in Southern California in the mid-60s. And for some reason, that inspired us to go back and look at the music that was, you know, really uh, foundational uh, in, in Law Canyon. And we started looking at those bands and how they were more or less communicating between each other. And, you know, that led us to the, the songs to maybe cover and, and start to work on a record. And then there's always a story behind a song and people behind that story. And you know, we, we tried to make a film out of the research that we were finding. So it was uh, the efforts to put together the concert that really came before the film. Well, the, it was more the exploration of the songs that, that, provided the impetus for the film. The concert was just an exercise for us to try to do something more expansive with the film, which was, you know, to show you the recording of a song, and then in the middle of that song, you could be at the concert, and then you could be back to the recording of the song, and then you could see the author of the song sitting there reacting to it. So it was more of a vehicle in terms of the overall look of the film. Uh, we've had uh, well, Brian Wilson on our show, Jimmy Webb, and others who were uh, a big part of that scene, and they talk about the sharing that went on among artists at that at that time period, and that's that's the echo. That's the echo that you speak about in the film. Uh, this idea that people in Laurel Canyon and in that LA music scene were open and wanted to share what they were doing and let our other artists hear it and contribute to it. Well, I think it was a time of innocence and and a sense of community, and I think that that's one of the great things about having all of those immensely talented songwriters and singers in that place at that time. I mean, I think, you know, for a lot of those bands, they were they were looking at the Hard Day's Night and the life that the Beatles were sort of portraying in that film, and they came to California in search of that. And the bands had multiple singers and multiple songwriters, like Buffalo Springfield with Steve 
Richie Furet and, and Chris Hillman and Neil Young, and they were sharing song ideas between them. And then across the street were, you know, people like Roger McGuinn and David Crosby. And so I think at that time also people weren't as concerned with the, with the self and the idea of how much money could be made or, or you know, just the general nature of things that happen when an industry, you know, uh, surrounds uh, creative endeavors. So was it more a, a healthy competition or was it more finding inspiration when when people would listen to a folk rock song and decide to incorporate that style or, or when a Brian Wilson would hear Rubber Soul and, and then turn around and make pet sounds? Uh, was it was it the competition or was it really, oh, wow, I, I love that. I'm going to try that myself. Well, I think probably a little bit of both, but clearly, you know, one has to be inspired before one creates. And when someone hears something that's a, um, you know, that's a, 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 a new idea that's an artful synthesis of two ideas, uh, it, you know, it becomes uh, the genesis for something new. And, you know, I think striving to be the best at what we're in nature. So uh, I feel like that's uh, both elements we're really involved in. Talking with Andrew Slater about his new film, Echo in the Canyon. Well, was it really the birds that issued the clarion call to everybody else to come out west? Well, it really does start with Roger McGuinn and that 12-string. Uh, when he electrifies folk music and takes Pete Seeger's Bells of Rimney uh, and turns that into his own interpretation, along with Turn, 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 and other beat poetry music, George Harrison hears that, and he writes, If I Needed Someone, which goes on Rubber Soul, which Brian Wilson hears, and he uh, aspires to write Pet Sounds, which the Beatles hear, and they do Sgt. Pepper. And right there is the sort of bedrock for all of album music, you know, for the next 50 years. How much of a role did uh, Doug Weston and the Troubadour play in that sound? Well, I think... The Troubadour is something that's referenced in the film as a place where people, uh, you know, went to obviously play. It was the beginnings of the folk scene, or one of the beginnings of the folk scene in California, that in the Ashgrove. Uh, but I think it's more closely associated with a later period of Laura Canyon, you know, where it's about the singer-songwriter. Mm. Um and for us, there was really three periods of Laurel Canyon. There's the there's the first period that we were focused on when there were bands coming to California emulating the Beatles. And then there's the psychedelic period, which is things, you know, get a little darker, and there's the riots on Sunset. You have the doors and love and different bands like that. And then after that, there's a retrenchment, and, you know, it's more about sort of country music influences on, on rock. And as Beck says in the film, it's about the individual searching his own path. And you, Joni Mitchell, you know, shows up and the bands become Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young instead of the Buffalo Springfield and the Birds. Uh, you're obviously telling a great story here, but also preserving history and, and seeing that already. Uh, one of the last, if not the last, interview that Tom Petty did. And how important is you to to maintain history and tell the story of these people, some of whom are are, uh, are getting up there and may not be telling that story much longer? Well, you know, really for us it was about telling a story. And, you know, we love the music that 
those people made, and we love the people behind it, the ones that we know and have come to know personally. So the idea of making the film wasn't so much about being a historian or preserving anything. It was just about telling a story that was very important to us. And along the way, if that film becomes a document of that time, along with other great documents, you know, that's uh, anything. That's the most any filmmaker could ask for. This was your first film. Stylistically, you've done some things uh, that I haven't seen the film yet, but from the trailer that I think are really interesting. Obviously, having Jacob there asking the questions uh, adds a whole new level of authenticity and gets people to open up. But even the settings, too, you, you've gotten away from the uh, the standard documentary trope of uh, a guy in a room with a green screen or a backdrop. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, for, for me, I have seen all of these films, you know, uh, through the years, documentaries, and there's some great work by great documentarians. I mean, you know, no one could, you know, ever argue with, uh, you know, the work of, of D.A. Pennebaker or, you know, Meisels. I mean, mm. it, it's all great stuff. But uh, for, for what I was looking to do was more to capture the thing that really changed my DNA, which was when I was in a movie theater. That was the first place I got to experience live music because I was too young to go to the places where these bands were playing. So in in doing a film, one, I wanted to do things that were unique, like take you in the middle of a song to these various places, the studio, the live performance and in front of the author. And also I wanted the people to look good because we revere them, and and so many documentaries were capturing the 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 information and doing it quickly because that's been a, you know sometimes it's it's the only way you can get the information. But I felt like in this particular instance, having been a journalist, I could never really write what I saw in people's faces when they were telling me a story, and I felt like in this film, if we were getting this personal, you know, look at uh, two songwriters speaking, I wanted you to be able to hold on their face long enough and look at them and see them telling these stories. And so I just wanted everyone to look good. And, you know, they deserve to look good. And, and I'm glad you think they do. Is there one song that really captures for you the time and the place better than any other? Well, I think Expecting to Fly for Me mm. frames the film really it captures, I think, in one sense, even in the title, you know, it, it, I think back in, in that period, no matter how outlandish people's dreams were, they felt like they could come true. And, you know, obviously we know through time that that kind of balanced optimism just doesn't last. And so the film begins and ends with that, you know, more or less. And uh, I feel like that song is as a as an ending point for the film is about the loss of innocence and it's about the loss of innocence in a relationship so we were using it as a way to say that the end of this period of innocence when all the bands came here um you know was 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 uh happening and uh i think when jacob sings bells are in the end he sings is there hope for the future in the beginning and you hear the opening notes of turn, 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 which 
you know, says there's a time for sort of everything. And we are sort of acknowledging that time. There's various little little nods to the era and uh, the the ideas of that era. Can there ever be another music scene like that? Has the Internet killed that? Do we work in a different way than, than we did 50 years ago? Well, I think that... Um, I think in some ways it's always there and it's always going to be there because people are going to share their ideas and uh, and they're going to create something uh, different, in many cases, we hope, better uh, by being inspired by other uh, writers. The way we share things is different. Uh, you know, now people are a little more insulated and they can record in their houses and trade files. And I think back then, one of the charming things about that sense of community is that if you were going to share an idea, you had to take your guitar and go across the street and knock on somebody's door and play it for them. And, uh, you know, that's one of many ways you can do that now, but it's clearly not the, the only way. How exciting was it for uh, the artists like uh, well, Fiona Apple, Regina Spector, Cat uh, Power, and the others to work with people that I'm sure they idolized growing up? Well, I think you'd have to ask them. You know, uh, clearly interpreting another artist's work that you admire brings a certain weight and responsibility, and I think all of those artists were uh, immensely successful at <laughs> at honoring uh, the work of the original uh, writers of that material. Well, I can't wait to see the film uh, getting wonderful reviews so far, and we're so happy that you were able to take a few moments and talk with us about it. Uh, Andy Slater, the film is Echo in the Canyon. We wish you much success with this, and thank you so much for visiting with us. Oh, thank you. That's Andrew Slater talking about Echo in the Canyon, his documentary on the L.A. music scene of the 1960s. When we come back, we'll stay in Los Angeles, but we'll move ahead to the early 80s and talk Dodger baseball with the author of a brand new book about the 1981 season called They Bled Blue. Jason Turbo is coming up after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Can you hear the drums from Mendel? I remember long ago another starry night like this. Right, there's a method to our madness here. Our next guest on Downtown, the podcast, has written a number of great books on baseball. The Baseball Codes, Beanball, Sign-Stealing, and Bench-Clearing Brawls. Dynastic, Bombastic, and Fantastic on the Oakland A's teams of the early 70s. And his newest, They Bled Blue, a chronicle of the 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers, led, of course, 
by youngster Fernando Valenzuela. Here's our conversation with author Jason Turbo. Great to be here, Rich. Thank you for having me on. Oh, another great book. This was such a fun read. It was so great to uh, to go back in time and, and revisit this incredibly memorable team. And, and as always, much like those Oakland A's teams that you chronicled, just a team filled with characters. Yeah, well, that's, that's what makes for good stories, I think. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to talk about championship teams, and I guess there has to be a, a certain degree of, of character within any championship team. But, but when you've got a team full of, of people who you know, made the engine run in very palpable ways, it's a, I, I think it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing to dissect them and figure out how that worked and why that was. The book ends for this story on one end, Fernando Valenzuela, but on the other end, Tommy Lasorda. And I knew some of the backstory, but this is a guy who was in many ways auditioning for this Dodgers managerial job for years, all the way back to his minor league days. Ownership was just worried he couldn't stop fighting long enough to be a manager. Well, you know, Lasorda was one of those guys that's known as a 4A player for the duration of his minor league career, right? Someone who is you know, on the on the top echelon of the minor leagues, but not quite good enough to make it as a major leaguer. And he had a very successful, very extended run as a minor leaguer, in large part because he was so darn feisty. Right? He was not he was not at all cowed by the prospect of knocking someone down, and he would stand up for himself at every opportunity. And and it it really did run him out of the Dodgers organization by the end. He just started one too many fights. He kind of crawled back on his hands and knees saying, please give me another chance. Well, the chance they gave him was <laughs> as a minor league manager, and he made the most of it. You know, under, under strict orders, don't fight so much. It took him a little bit of time. He actually, he actually got in some dust-ups as a minor league skipper. But, but he, uh, he righted the ship. But ultimately, I think that was really one of his true strengths as a manager was, was his deep passion, not only for the sport, but for the Dodgers. You know, he spent eight years as a minor league manager there uh, in, in places like Pocatello and, and Ogden, Utah. And that's where he came up with you know, all these sayings about bleeding Dodger blue and praying to the, the big Dodger in the sky. And he would hug his players after home runs. And he was, he was a vociferous on-field cheerleader to the degree that a lot of people said, you got to knock that off because it'll never play in the big leagues. This is harming your future mm. prospects. Luckily for Lasorda and the Dodgers, he paid no attention. He kept it right up all the way into the big league clubhouse, and it continued to work for him uh, as a big league manager. I mean, all, all the players who were instrumental to his early success had played for him in the minors. They knew what they were getting. They were used to being hugged after home runs, and, uh, and, and it worked. He went to the World Series his first two seasons as, as the Dodgers manager. And that, that energy was certainly genuine, and, and he showed that right away, meeting with players individually when he got the job, sending them letters to the point where he, he pretty much sold everybody on the roster. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't only the players, although that, that's certainly true. I mean, I talked to a number of guys who had who had never experienced that kind of thing before, like taking the, the manager taking such a, a deep degree of interest where he's sending them letters. I mean, Dusty Baker still has the letters that Lasorda sent him. But what's, what, what struck me was the letter that Lasorda sent to not Mike Sosha, but Mike Sosha's mother when they drafted Sosha out <laughs> right. of high school. She was, she was set on him going to college, and, and Lasorda took the time to, to write a letter to this woman who he, he had no business writing a letter to. He could easily have you know, turned his back and everything would have been fine. But, but he understood that dynamic and how it worked, and he wanted 
Mrs. Sosha to make sure that she knew the team was taking care of her son. And, and, and they did. I mean, it, he, he, was, he was as genuine as they come. It was an interesting roster, a good mix of veterans and, and young guys. Can you talk about coconut snatching, what that concept was, and, and how it was crucial to building this 81 team? Well, the Dodgers were not uh, built on ceremony in terms of you know, drafting a guy as a first baseman and having him play first base all the way through to the big leagues. They would plug guys in wherever they had a need, and and longtime general manager Branch Rickey, as you say, called it coconut snatching, which was a term he picked up in the tropics when he watched uh, people pair up to, to pick coconuts. One would scale a tree, a palm tree, and hold on with his legs and pick coconuts and drop it to the guy below until his legs tired, and then he would come down the tree, and the other guy would shimmy up and hold on. And, and Ricky took much that same approach, taking guys from one position and plugging them into another as need be. I mean, the, they, they had the most durable infield in big league history. And that infield of Garvey, Lopes, Russell, and Say played together for nearly nine years, which was about twice longer than the next most durable infield ever. And Davey Lopes started as an outfielder, and Bill Russell started as an outfielder, and Steve Garvey started as a third baseman. And the only guy who ended up where he started was Ron Say, and they even tried to move Say to the outfield, which terrified him because, because he, he, all he wanted to do was play third base. Luckily, it worked out, and it worked out in the long run. I mean, these guys were the cornerstone of the Dodgers' success for, for well over a decade. Uh, we're talking with Jason Turbo. His book is called They Bled Blue, about the 1981 Dodgers. Uh, spring training rolled around that year, and a, a ton of injuries. And was it Lasorda who referred to it as Camp If? Camp if, well, he, he laid it out. Like, we will win the World Series if we maintain health. And if Pedro Carrero can, can you know, pick up the pace. And if our backup players can do this. And if our starting pitchers can do that. Uh, and the, the prime injury was to Reggie Smith, who was, you know, the team MVP for several years running. Uh, and, and a very vocal leader in that clubhouse. He had injured his shoulder severely the previous, the previous season. And he ended up being unable to do much more than pinch hit. For the duration of 1981, he, he played almost zero innings in the field, and and that was a, a, a big hurdle to overcome. I mean, he was one of Lasorda's ifs, and that didn't work out the way they had hoped. Uh, luckily, an if that Lasorda did, didn't even think to ask came around to kind of balance that out in the form of Fernando Valenzuela. And that's such an amazing story of how he came to them, uh, the work of Mike Brito, and then uh, the the guy who played such a role in the success of Valenzuela. Bobby Castillo. Yeah, well, Bobby Castillo, <laughs> he was actually drafted by the Kansas City Royals as a third baseman, another coconut snatching job for the Dodgers, <laughs> washed out of their system after one year, was playing semi-pro ball in Los Angeles uh, as a pitcher when he played uh, the team run by Mike Brito, who is the longtime Dodgers scout, uh, who, who long-time long viewers would recognize as the guy in the Panama hat behind home plate mm. holding a radar gun. Uh, he actually struck Brito out with a screwball, of all things. And, and, and Brito had never seen anything like it at that level. He used that one pitch to sign up uh, Castillo into the Mexican leagues and subsequently signed him to the Dodgers. When he brought Fernando to the big leagues, Fernando Valenzuela, um, and he took him out of Mexico as, at 18 years old, the Dodgers decided he needed to learn another pitch. They didn't have anyone who threw a split-finger fastball, which was their first option. But Brito said, hey, I know someone who throws a screwball. 
and Bobby Castillo, who's from Los Angeles, who went to Mexico to get signed by the Dodgers, brought him all the way back home, ended up teaching Fernando Valenzuela the pitch that made him famous. Uh, Valenzuela lights out right out of the gate, starts the season with 7-0, and 8-0, and uh, hit a little rough stretch along the way, but obviously became a superstar immediately because of the population base. But there's also a wonderful story that you tell in the book about the history of Chavez Ravine. Yeah, well, Fernando, he really did come out of nowhere. And opening day, 1981, he was 20 years old. He had never made a major league start. He, he'd come up the previous September for a handful of relief appearances. But through a series of injuries, uh, late breaking and, and spring training, Fernando found himself as the first rookie pitcher in the 98-year history of the Dodgers to start on opening day. And he ended up throwing a shutout against the class of the National League, the Houston Astros. And his next start, he threw a complete game victory. And his next start after that, he threw another shutout. And his next start after that, he threw another shutout. And his next start after that, he threw another shutout. And during which he went three for four to bring his season batting average to 438. It was, it was an um, amazing turn of events. For the Dodgers on the field, obviously, it helped them very much. They got off to the best start in baseball. But off the field, as you mentioned, I think it had even more, more to do with their, their ongoing success. And that's because Dodger Stadium is located, as many people know, in a place called Chavez Ravine, which is just about a mile from downtown Los Angeles. But for decades, it had been home to a very vibrant Mexican community, thousands strong. They had a couple of schools, they had a post office, they had a church. Uh, but, but the rugged hillsides that separated it from downtown kept it largely undeveloped. In the late 40s, uh, the L.A. mayor decided this was the perfect place to build a giant housing development, low-income housing. Uh, and he offered residents first shot at new units as they became available in exchange for their property. Most of the residents took him up on the offer. But before ground could be broken... There was a new election in 1953. A very conservative man uh, named Norris Polson swept in, riding you know, the McCarthyist populace of the, the McCarthyist um, politics of the era. Uh, he branded subsidized housing as a socialist plot. <laughs> he scuttled the entire thing, and that left, well, a it left a bunch of Mexicans with no place to live, and b it left the city of Los Angeles with a lot of empty acreage and not a lot to do with it. And it was at that point that Walter O'Malley decided to move his baseball team from Brooklyn to the West Coast. And the city of Los Angeles said, why don't you put your stadium here? So the Dodgers had sold about a million tickets their last season in Brooklyn. They pretty much doubled that their first four years in L.A., and that was while they played at the Los Angeles Coliseum while Dodger Stadium was being built. Once Dodger Stadium opened up, uh, they, they just shattered season ticket sale records almost on an annual basis. Like they sold three, two and three-quarter million tickets their first year in, in Dodger Stadium in 1962. Uh, everyone wanted to see the Dodgers except for the local Mexicans who had long memories. They were justifiably bitter at the treatment. And, and the Dodgers cared about this because Los Angeles County had a higher concentration of Mexicans there than anywhere else in the world outside of Mexico City. And this was a fan, a fan base that they wanted to tap into but couldn't. And they tried to, you know, trot out relatable players from Mexico over the years. None of them were very good until Fernando came along. And, and like you said, after Fernando's first eight starts, his record was 8-0. and He had thrown nine innings in every single start. He had thrown five shutouts. 
given up a total of four runs. His ERA was 0.5. And it is safe to say, at that point, the Mexican community <laughs> was engaged. Right? Al Campanas, the general manager, liked to say he, he, he wanted to find a Mexican Sandy Koufax, somebody to activate the local Mexicans the way that Koufax had activated the Jews. And Fernando did that and more. And it wasn't just the Mexicans. Everybody was activated. Uh, Jaime Harin, the longtime broadcaster, told me that nobody in history had single-handedly created more baseball fans than did Fernando in 1981. And I think that's very, very believable. In the midst of Fernando mania, there was labor strife bubbling under the surface, and that would all come to a head in mid-June when the players went on strike and, and would stay out for the better part of two months. It was interesting to look back and realize what, what doesn't seem all that long ago to me, but it was a time when some guys were worried about uh, what they were going to do to make ends meet, had to take on part-time jobs, had to borrow money to get to home. And it, it, that's how much baseball has changed just in the intervening 38 years. That's true. And um, the veteran players were, were fairly well set. And then the Dodgers were a team full of veteran players. But many of the younger players had, <laughs> had no cash liquidity. Then Dave Stewart was a rookie that year. He, he went on to win you know, many, many games for the A's later in his career. Uh, he was making $17,000 a year, and he actually had to take a job in a hardware manufacturer facility, um, boxing nuts and bolts, among other duties. And you, you better believe that people in that warehouse were very happy to see a major league ball player come to work every day and get to hang out with him. But it was. It was a, a wildly different landscape than we know now. And because of the strike, we ended up with the whole split season, a different playoff structure. But despite that, some great playoff series, uh, taking on the Astros again after what had happened previously with them, and then the Yankees uh, in the World Series. It really was a wonderful postseason. And uh, some of the guys um, came up big and performed in unexpected ways in that postseason for them. Well, well, yeah. I mean, between the Astros and the Yankees was the Montreal Expos, mm. the National League Championship Series. The Astros series, by the way, was the first ever divisional series in, base, in Major League Baseball history because of the first half, second half champions. Up until then, it had just been one playoff series, and the winner goes to the World Series. So that set a new precedent. But against Montreal in the, in the NLCS, it came down to Game 5 of a five-game series, and Rick Monday hit the game-winning home run in the late innings in Montreal. And it happened to be on a Monday, and, and <laughs> that game is forever known as Blue Monday uh, in Montreal. And I will say, I have, and since this book has come out, I have taken so much good-natured grief from Expos fans, long-standing Expos <laughs> fans. That was as close as they came to the World Series, right. with the possible exception of the 1994 strike season. Uh, <laughs> they, they still can't stand Rick Monday <laughs> in a way that has nothing actually to do with Rick Monday. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's kind of sad to see. And you point out, too, uh, that this was in many ways the, the end for that group of Dodgers. Eventually that gang would be broken up. Guys would go their separate ways. And then even that great season in 1981 would be surpassed by what happened in 1988. Yeah, this, this team knew that this was their last chance. You know, that infield had been together forever. The outfield was full of veterans. The pitching staff, with the exception of Fernando Valenzuela, was very veteran. And, and contracts were coming up, and even more importantly, the Dodgers' farm system was stocked. And all these veterans came into the season saying out loud, like, if, if we're going to win a World Series together, this is, this is probably our final shot. And they knew it going in, and they got into deep holes against the Astros. They went down two games to none in a five-game series. They went down two games to one in a five-game series against the Expos. 
They lost the first two games of a seven-game series against the Yankees, and they won every one of those series. And, and part of it was because of the fortitude they had in, in having lost the 77 and 78 World Series and knowing that they were about to be broken up. And sure enough, they were. Davey Lopes was traded that offseason. A year later, Ron Sands, Steve Garvey were gone. And the Dodgers that ended up winning in 1988 were, were completely different. Every veteran was, was off the roster from 81. Well, it is a wonderful read, and uh, I didn't want to talk a lot about the postseason. Not that we can have spoilers. It's history. People can look it up, but it's worth uh, it's worth reading just for that. But I, I love the book so much, loved revisiting these great characters. Uh, you've done it again. Uh, the book is called They Bled Blue, Fernando Mania, Strike Season Mayhem, and the Weirdest Championship Baseball Had Ever Seen. Jason Turbo, thanks again for coming back to visit with us, and much success with the book. Those are great compliments. Thank you very much. Might I just say that I blog regularly at baseballcodes.com, mostly about baseball's unwritten rules, the topic of my first book. But come on along and and check in. Jason Turbo, his book, They Bled Blue, a great story about those 81 Dodgers. And Kerry gave us an opportunity to play Abbas Fernando. So you got that going for us. An opportunity (laughs) we don't get all that often. (laughs) But now I'm going to look for more. (laughs) I think from now on, we'll try to find an, an Abbas song. It can go with every guest. <laughs> Wait, why? The subscriber numbers are falling as I speak. What's happening? Uh, our thanks to Jason Turbo, uh, producer Andrew Slater. His new documentary is Echo in the Canyon. Thanks to you for joining us. Tell your friends, spread the word, give us a good review if you're so inclined. And we'll see you next time. You're on Downtown Podcast.